Hello and welcome to episode number three of Midair Meets, the monthly music podcast where we talk to a wide range of people from the music industry. This month I'm talking to Neotropic, musician, producer and singer who's released prolifically with Linda Tune Records, as well as the sub-label Entone and RNS Records. She spent her career working with a huge range of artists, including Future Sound of London, Four Hero, and also toured with the whole Ninja Tune family, including Eamon Tobin, DJ Vadim, and Cold Cuts. We sat down to talk about the history of sampling, what it was like to be a female producer in the 90s, and how she fuses film and installations with her music. So let's check it out. Where did music start for you? What were your sort of early memories of music? Home, parents. My dad was really into quite hard rock. He was into people like Black Sabbath, Pink Floyd. Uh, yes, a lot of kind of progressive rock. Um, Electric Lion Orchestra. He used to go to gigs quite a lot as well. With my mum, my mum wasn't really into rock. That she found it quite difficult. She was more into kind of songs like Doctor Hook. Mm-hmm. They were really like that. Neil Diamond. Who are, you know? I wasn't really a fan of something. But she liked she liked John Lennon, and I kind of liked John Lennon. I wasn't a huge Beatles fan, not as a kid. I was much more interested in what was currently going on. Um, Sundays were always kind of like when my dad would get the records out, the vinyl. We'd listen to records, put it on. Because one day he'd get off a week. So we'd all have it in the house. It was great. And then school, I was... I used to play the recorder. And I progressed and I went on to do, like, these uh, competitions. So I grew up in the West Country. So we used to have these things in uh, Cheltenham, Bath. They were quite, kind of like young musician of the year. And everybody would get up and play their respective pieces. So you'd learn classical pieces. Mm. And then I progressed onto the flute. Uh, I wanted to actually play the saxophone, but they didn't have any. So I ended up playing the flute, unfortunately. But actually, I'm kind of glad. And then ended up being in the school orchestra, which I didn't really appreciate at the time. I found it a bit kind of, OK, you've got to play this piece of music and it has to be played exactly as it's been written. I found that quite difficult. So I left the orchestra and kind of gave up the flute for a while. And then I ended up in a, in a band with my sister. Oh, right. She was the drummer. Mm-hmm. We were really bad. I mean, <laughs> you know, it was, it was more like an experiment. But then we, we moved away from where we grew up, me and my sister. We went to live in Dorset. And we ended up in a band in Dorset where she was a drummer as well. Which <laughs> was quite funny. Mm-hmm. And we did quite well. We were kind of a bit like a Test Department. Do you remember a band called Test Department? They used to kind of weld things on stage. Not quite as bad as that. Really, it was like quite experimental. Saw and like yeah, that. but we used a lot of. Um, we found kind of bits of metal and we used to hit metal. It was quite experimental, really. That sounds cool. And then we ended up winning a Battle of the Bands kind of for most original band, which I thought was hilarious. And that we did that for a few years, and I just really got into it. And then I ended up working with a friend who was really into analog tape machines. So he used to have a, I think it was a, was it a quarter-inch tape? So he used to do all the backing tracks on tape machine. And it was a bit like the Cure meets kind of Cocteau Twins. And I used to kind of wail over the top. It was great. It was mm. really kind of, 
And I loved it. It was a really cool thing to do. And it really got me interested in kind of like the using of equipment that wasn't guitars or mm. anything. Because he used to use a lot of loop pedals and stuff as well. So, And then he'd run drum machines, but he would put them on tape. So we then would just take the tape to the gig. Yeah. And it looked great. So that was kind of my first real kind of experience of using that. So it was very basic. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of interesting because we really didn't know what we were doing. But we were a bit like, oh, that sounds quite good. Let's kind of... So we were kind of creating... I guess you'd call them songs of sorts. But they mm -hmm. weren't really. We just were improvising a lot of the time. Yeah. And it kind of worked. So. But I guess you get, in doing that, you got your own sound quite quickly. Yeah. It as was, a group, as a band. It kind of really opened up the kind of... The doors to kind of doing something that wasn't kind of current or popular. And I was listening to bands that were trying to do kind of things a little bit, you know, left of field. There were bands around that were doing it, like Test Department or kind of some of the German bands and stuff, but we were kind of trying to create something that was our own. Mm -hmm. And it was a very small community, but it had a really good music scene in Port in Bournemouth, actually. There was a place, um, it was called the Third Side Club, which mm -hmm. was kind of like the left field... There was a lot of goths that went, but that was all right. We didn't mind that. We thought it was quite good. And they were quite open to all that kind of stuff anyway. So, you know, dark, brooding. And the music we were doing was quite dark as well. So mm -hmm. it was fun. It was right. It was really, I really enjoyed it. It was a good time. Because you don't really have any inhibitions then, or you're not really kind of governed by, you know, the desire to be picked up by a record label. We were never really into that. We were just like, we're just going to do this. Mm -hmm. and it was more fun than kind of anything. Yeah, I think that's... That's the right way to approach it, isn't it? Yeah. To approach it from doing what you want to do yeah. rather than doing things that you think people want to see yeah. see you doing. Because we were, I think, my sister was working in a sausage factory. <laughs> I can't remember. I was working in a pub. So it wasn't like we were, you know, we had these aspirations of being... So it was kind of funny that we were just... And we'd just meet up a couple of times a week. I mean, we ended up rehearsing in a kind of weird village hall. God knows what the people thought when we turned up every week. <laughs> You've talked about having journeys of your life in songs and putting those experiences into music and, and video and other things. What are those journeys of life and how have they influenced the sound that you created? Well, it can be anything, really. You know, living in London is a journey and being around certain people, but also travelling. I mean, travelling is amazing. To be able to travel and actually experience other cultures. And when I, when I was signed to Ninja, I did tour a lot. And I did get to see some amazing places that probably not everybody would get the opportunity to go to. You know, I went to Australia twice. Mm -hmm. Toured the States, which was amazing. But on top of that, I did other things as well. Like I went to India and a couple of years ago I spent a month living in Borneo in the jungle. So oh, excellent. all those kind of things are what shape you as a human being. And I think sometimes you, in the Western, in Western culture, we are kind of, you know, almost like nonchalant about the things we have, you know, so that we, you know, everything's at our fingertips. You step outside of that and go and live in a place where none of that exists or people are struggling from the day to day. It certainly humbles you and makes you look at the world in a completely different way. So for me, you know, I think when I went to India, I was just, I was just struck 
by the poverty, but people were actually getting on with their lives. And they were probably some of the loveliest people I ever met. And they didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. But you just kind of take that away with you. And, and I, you know, I'd always record everything anyway. And that's in the days before we had these. But I had a DAP machine and all the soundscapes. Cool. High fidelity. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, good old DAP machine. I think I even used a mini disc, which I used to love. Me too. You know, and I and I think I just wandered around just collecting all the sounds and those were kind of little moments in time that I could take home and then kind of kind of almost relive and then kind of create from that and I think that's always been very much the way of my creating is kind of using found sound field recordings that I can incorporate into the kind of compositions <laughs> I never really wanted to write music for the dance floor. I mm-hmm. was never really interested in that. Loved DJing that kind of stuff and you know being in that, but I never really wanted to make music for that. It just felt a bit, I don't know, it wasn't really me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to create something a little more, with a little more depth maybe. And I wasn't really classically trained and I think I learnt my trade by working with other people and watching other people. When I first started doing more kind of studio-based work. So I kind of, would always be interested in how other people worked. And in the early days, it was using samples, you know, Mm -hmm. collecting stuff and then kind of trying to manipulate them. Sometimes it was always not always that obvious, you know. Sometimes you'd be just, oh, just slam it in there, you know. (laughs) Amon Tobin would do that quite a lot, and I actually quite like what he did with a lot of the samples, but... Oh, God, he's done some amazing things. I love Amon. Amon's such a beautiful guy. I mean, you know... One of the loveliest people you'll ever meet. Really, yeah. Yeah, he's so down to earth. He's Brazilian, um, isesn't he? Yes, he is. But he's, I think he grew up in the UK. But he was just always the sweetest. I went on tour with him a couple of times. Did you really? He's wow, just so awesome. lovely. He was just, you know, I must say, Ninja Tune always had a really lovely bunch of artists. And we'd all end up going on tour buses together. So when you're spending a lot of time with people, that would be the odd moment where you'd kind of walk, you know. If you're spending a lot of time with people, it does get a bit like, uh. Yeah, I don't think there's any... But Amon was just fantastic. I mean, in the early days, he's now a mega, you know, with all his kind of mapping and stuff. But, um, but yeah, lovely guy. You know, even people like Funky Porcini would use quite... He was quite blatant with his sampling. I think we all were in the beginning. I think it's a bit more difficult now to get away with it, the samples. I don't know. I wonder whether it is, you know, because I, I even I read in like, um, you know, magazines, music making magazines where there's people who are established artists who say, oh, we just went on YouTube, Googled this thing and we got the sample. <coughs> and clearly they haven't got it cleared by anybody or but then but then who's monitoring like the, you know, the YouTube mm. audio end of it, like the PRS now have not only old tracks that people can sample but then you know random videos so well youtube is perfect example of what people do now they just yeah. rip everything from youtube my publisher will not let me do that he's he's anal about it because he Good. because also <laughs> because syncing now because we're a lot of my back catalog we're trying to sync so i think he's now i mean i had to list everything in some of the previous Neotropic albums, samples, because, you know, we can't, 
we can't afford to kind of give something to you know, HBO or something and suddenly oh, there's a bloody big sample in there. It's yeah. not going to work. Uh, there's been some high-profile examples where people haven't cleared their samples. And it's and really important. It's, yeah. And you just, you'll just end up in trouble. And thank God my publisher... He's so on it, because if, if he wasn't, I'd be completely... You know, I'd be like, oh, yeah, just do it, you know. Yeah, just put that in. No one will notice. It's from the 50s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you just think, oh, no, maybe not. So, yeah, you got to be careful. So And some people were very purist about it. I mean, Orteca and mm-hmm. those people who kind of, you know, just made it from scratch or made it from, you know, drum machines and stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, also, I saw Ortec alive, I don't know if it was this year or last year, and it was in pitch darkness. Oh, yeah, they always do, sitting yeah. on the floor. <laughs> you can't see, I don't know how anyone can see anything. But it's always very intense, their shows. It was very intense, it was very intense, yeah. Um, but I guess going back to the found sounder stuff and recording stuff yourself, if you record it yourself, you know that it's, yeah. it's clear and you can use it, and then, yeah, you maybe have more of a connection to it being your own, don't you, than like using someone else's. Yeah, I mean, I used to go into uh, just like laundrette. I had a real fascination with laundrettes because I spent a lot of time in there when I first moved to London because I didn't have a washing machine. And I think uh, there's actually there's a 12 called Laundrophonic on Ninja Tune. Yes, yeah, so I and saw that. All, yeah, it's all sounds yeah. from the laundrette I used to go to. Is it? It's been this crazy South African woman that used to run it. She was a complete nutter. But I'd spend all day in that slot machine, recording it. It was Clunking brilliant. The, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it was just I like, and I kind it. of used that and created whole kind of pieces of music from it. So those kind of things, just the kind of everyday things that we do, I was always really fascinated by. What would be your first memory of like sampling, using a sampler? I used to work with this guy in Dollis Hill. There's a, it's not there anymore, unfortunately. There was a place called Jumbo Studios, and uh, I was working there for a while, and then suddenly all these people started moving in. I was just working with this guy, because I just said, oh, can I just come and hang out? And, you know, he said, well, you can do a bit of singing for me. And um, I said, no, actually, I want to learn how to use the equipment. He said, oh, well, well if you do a bit of singing, maybe make some tea, I'll help you. I was like, oh, okay. It was all right, actually. He was, just, he was doing a lot of kind of dub reggae and a bit of hip-hop. And so I thought, all right, I'll come in and do that. And anyway, over the months and over the years, they started putting like studio because it was a rehearsal studio. We used to get people like Suede coming in and a few other people. Mm-hmm. Wow. It was like some big bands used to come in actually. I think Paul Weller used to come in. Um, anyway, and then Future Sound of London moved in, which is really amazing. So I was like, what? Because I knew Stacker Humanoid and some was a guy from Stacker oh, Humanoid. Oh, that was such a good tune, wasn't it? So he's moved in downstairs. I'm like, really? (laughs) And then Four Hero moved in. And it was just like, whoa. So Goldie was popping in every now and then. He was quite a character. So I ended up kind of, there's all this kind of new music that was going on in the building. And, uh, And I happened to, we had this kind of common area where there was like a pool table and we'd make tea and coffee. And then Brian came in one day and I said, oh, oh. Are you from downstairs? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, aren't you stack a humanoid? He said, oh, oh, yeah, how did you know that? Oh, well, you know, <laughs> did a bit of research. And, uh, and we got chatting, and I said, oh, so what are you doing now? He said, oh, I've got this project called Future Sound London. I'm like, oh, really? So he said, I work with this guy called Gary. We've got a studio downstairs. I said, uh, oh, can I come have a look? He said, yeah. So I went in, and they had all these samplers and stuff in there, and I was like, oh, 
and taped jeans and I was like, ooh, and a big desk. And I was like, nice. So he said, uh, oh, actually, we need a vocalist. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> oh. He said, well, come and do some stuff. So he used to just sample me. He just get me doing really stupid things. Can you uh, sound like a seagull? I'm like, all right. So I'm like, ah, ah. <laughs> and things like that. So it was great, because I was kind of doing these weird things in voice, and I was like, hmm, this is quite fun. And then he would just sample me and then kind of time stretch it in the sampler, chop it up, get it on the keyboard. So it was all kind of, I was like, wow, this is amazing. So it really kind of inspired me, because you didn't have to be kind of an amazing musician. You could kind of use, it was almost like cut things up, cut and paste. And I think they were running Cubase, and I was like, oh, this is brilliant. So I went back to the other studio I've been working in and I said, mm, can I start maybe learning how to use the sampler? He had an MPC actually, which I never really got my head around. I wish I had because I really do like the MPC 60. Mm-hmm. It's got a good swing on it. The swing. It's all the, the, it's a really good swing. Yeah. And, uh, but they even talk about that no one even programmed swing into it. It just does it. It just had a really good swing. <laughs> but I like the fact because it had like the pads so you could play it kind of live. Yeah, and he was a bit of a dab hand on it, the guy Hamish who had the studio. Um, so it was good watching him make music. Um, he often just would spend hours though on the same bit, run, 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 where I was, I'd get a bit like bored and that. Mm. So we did a few projects together and then I ended up doing more stuff with Future Sound. And they kind of inspired me to kind of just go out and do my own thing. So I was a bit nervous in the beginning because I didn't really know what I was doing. But yeah. I'd kind of taught myself how to use Cubase. I bought a little uh, little desk, little analog desk. And then uh, I got a sampler, I just got an S1000, you know, floppy disks. Mm-hmm. I think I had a DAP machine. I had a portable DAP machine, I think. So I just then send stuff into the sampler and then, you know, get it in there, scroll it, cut bits out. Mm-hmm. It was great. It was a really great piece of equipment. I even took it on tour. I can't even believe I took it on tour. They're so it was heavy, just, aren't they? So <laughs> heavy. I had to put it in a flight case. The flight case weighed more than the actual sampler. But it was great because then I could trigger all the samples and stuff like. I was a bit mad then. I don't know how they did it, but... They were pretty reliable too. The solid. Like... Solid. I hardly touched it. It never crashed. It was like... It was fantastic. And I loved it for that. And... It was a really good kind of way of working. It was quite primitive, but I kind of liked it, you know. And then I didn't get too in-depth. I know a lot of people would spend hours in there programming and doing all these weird little rolls and all that. Mm -hmm. And I never really did all of that. I was just like, I've got time. I want to be writing music. I want to be spending hours doing that. Yeah, I think it's easy to get lost in the details. Yeah, you do. And and, And Brian, bless him, you know, he was the kind of program head behind in the futures, because he was, you know, he, he'd come from Salford, he went to Salford University, which has a really good music production, mm-hmm. and he ended up being a lecturer there for a while as well, oh, right, right. so he had a lot of knowledge. His dad also worked in Scottish TV, so, and his dad was a bit of a geek, so he'd kind of been around that all his life, so, for me, he was kind of like pivotal in kind of making me see the future. What was it like being a female like producer in in the early in days? In the early days, yeah. 
it's quite interesting because there has been quite a lot of attention about that. I mean, I know Grimes has brought it up quite a bit, and I do empathise with her because she brought up a couple of scenarios that I had encountered. But uh, I think it's the way you deal with the situations. Um, particularly when you turn up at a gig and you you get a certain kind of sound engineer that would be probably been around for a while, not quite sure about what you're doing and be quite, I don't know, dismissive. Whereas with the other, with my male kind of other bands or other artists on the tour who are male, they'd get a completely different response. Or, you know, I'd had, I had a few run-ins with sound engineers, live sound engineers, who were just assholes basically. Mm. And just treated me appallingly, you know. One would be disrespectful and just like, I'd be like, it's fine, you know. It's the night, it's over, done with it. You know, I'd always make the point of saying thank you at the end of the night, even if he was an arsehole. That's know? good, yeah, and maintain your own composure. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. be, you know, it's like, you know, that thing about slagging off the chef and then they spit in your food kind of thing. You know, just <laughs> yeah. It just takes all the bass out of your track. Exactly, you don't want that to happen. But I, it was on the rare occasion. It wasn't, it wasn't all the time. I think it should always be a level playing field, regardless of your gender. And, and I think that's why I never went out under a name. I chose something that was kind of not really, whether it's female or male. Mm. And I think a lot of people did think I was a man until they met me. I was like, oh, you're not a man. No. And I did that for a reason. I just didn't want to get labelled. You know, there were people like Andrea Parker and, you know, Mira Calix who were kind of doing similar things, which was great. You know, I didn't necessarily want to go, you know, go, here I am. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted it to be a bit more like undercover, incognito. Yeah, it's much more fun. I totally get that. Yeah, like having a bit of enigma, you know? Yeah, I'd rather do that. I wasn't really, you know, press is great. You know, all press is good regardless of whatever they say, even if this, you know, kind of slag your record off. It doesn't matter. I mean... Is that well, still true, do you think? Is that still true? I, I don't know. If they've, if they've taken the time out to slag your record off, then you've got some airtime, you know what I mean? I don't care. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. And I think sometimes you'd get a bit like, oh, well, that was a shit review. But then you just think, well, you know, can't please everybody all the time. Not everybody's going to love what you do. No so, way. I used to shoot a lot of um, Super 8. I love analogue Super 8. It's nice. expensive and it's very hard to get it. It's unfortunately now, you can't really get the films processed. Because they all closed down, and which was, it was a shame. But then you used to have, um, you could buy the film and have a little envelope included in the price of buying the film, and you'd send it off and you'd get it processed. Mm -hmm. I remember, I just about remember those days with the 35mm. And I loved uh, it because it was such a great. I bought a, I had a little clockwork Russian camera, so it was just wind up, and it was brilliant. And I took it everywhere, shoot, you know, time lapse and stuff like that. So then I'd put together a film. Really? Wow, yeah, that was, it was such amazing. a great time lapse with Super 8. You're just like, click, 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 click. I'd be walking around and it'd be going, click, click. And I'd put it up on a tripod and then leave it. It was great. It was, um, I love doing that. And then I can't, you, know, you never know quite what to expect when you get your films back. And then you just splice them all together with a little cut in with a knife and then stick them together. And then. Uh, Get them put onto uh, VHS at that time. 
it was quite funny. Yeah, it's such an amazing format. I think, like, I know Super 8 from going to my nan's house and watching videos of my parents when they were young and my mum when she was young. And even the sound of the machine. Oh, I love that sound. The projector. The thing that it does. Even when that, I hear that sound, I'm already loving whatever's gonna, whatever visuals are going to appear. I'm going to love them. Yeah, it's such a rich format. The colours are so strong. I do. Actually, if I, I go car boot sailing, which I do quite a lot, I do pick up a lot of old Super 8 films and use them. Because just use them as backdrops are great. I've, I've got one of, like, it's called Lassie. And it's just, it's just a couple walking their dog. It's a... Uh, who looks like Lassie. And mm. <laughs> it's, it's probably 1970s or something, but the colours are great. Yeah, just, they're, they're incredible. Um, so, have, so you've also done like a lot of visual stuff, haven't you? Yeah, but I didn't really shows. do um, any real, I've never, I've done a few kind of film courses, more editing than anything, but, um, but I, I just loved creating the image, because I'd always be like taking pictures and stuff like that, so. Mm -hmm. And even with artwork, I think the first album we just went out and took loads of pictures of CCTV cameras, actually, which was great. So nice. I'd always take pictures of stuff. Yeah, that's and cool. And then get someone to help me do the design with the, with the artwork. I think even on La Prochaine Fire, I had a pull-out insert, which was actually created from a photograph that I did from... Used to be, I used to have a Lomo camera, and I've still... Uh, but you could get the prints could come out. You could get little, like little prints, like this big. Mm -hmm. So I used to get them printed out in that way, and then I just made a kind of almost like decoupage or collage, and we used that as the insert. But it was of cool, my local idea. area. You know, I'd go around just clicking what I would do on a daily day, a daily basis, like go down the market, Brick Lane on a Sunday, stuff like that. So it's kind of like an almost, you know a documentation of that time in my life, which is great. It's so the also, music was yeah. a part of the documentation, but it's also the imagery. I think the films are also relevant as well. Because a lot of the films were taken when I was on tour and sort of capturing those moments. Which, you you know, if you had a photographic memory, it'd be great. Like everybody <laughs> has, but, you know, being able to... I go back and look at those scenes sometimes. Oh, no, that's when I was in Australia. You know, so. Yeah, it's, I guess it's a bit like the found sound stuff. There's so many memories that come flying back when you hear or yeah, see a, exactly. a, a fragment of it. It's more than just a feeling. You, you sort of, you can go back there. Everything's so instant now. Instagram, Facebook, you know. It's all there and literally in five minutes, you know, everything's up online. Yeah, I think I think have it waiting that that time when you wait for a film to be processed and not knowing which of the no, good pictures that. was the lighting right in that. I think that was the best picture I've ever taken. You know, I think that that all those things is like it's sort of character building and there's sort of a richness to that waiting and like opening up. Going, oh my god, this one. Yeah, this it's one. much more exciting. Everything's so instant now. Yeah. I mean, you can you know doctor things, you can do things in Photoshop, and which is fine, and and I do like. The instantness of technology now, but there is something quite. Sometimes it's quite soulless, you know. It doesn't have the depth or the, you know, in, like you said, when you get the film back or you get the pictures back, you're like, wow, look at that, you know. It's yeah. Not, it's not quite the same. And I think there's also a parallel to that and sampling and the process of using like an old S1000 or mm. S2000, 3000. There's something about the time that you take to like record it and then set it up and get it all working as you 
as you want it on a sampler yeah. compared to doing it on a computer which you can literally do in two or three seconds I find you get such richer sound there's something more there's something about the sounds that came from the sampler that you can sort of hear the time and effort that's gone into it yeah it's definitely uh, you learn how to use it you know you could go as deep as you want with it you know I know some friends who would just be like can you do that whoa what did you do there and I said how did you do that you know and they'd be like well you just do this this and this I'm like Jesus I ain't got time to be doing that <laughs> but you know but that's what I liked about it you could go as deep as you wanted to mm-hmm. it's a shame you know but then some of us are kind of coming back to that, you know, going back to using a lot of analog. And I still, I mean, I do work in a laptop. I still work in that, but I actually do use a lot of live instruments and kind of, you know, there is so many soft synths and stuff you can use now. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of instruments do you, do you like I do, I now? play... Uh, it depends. It could be anything. I'm doing a lot of drums lately. It's just, it's just stuff like that, you know, creating real drum sounds using, you know, live drums, recorders, flutes, stringed instruments, just kind of using all the kind. I've collected a lot of kind of weird instruments over the years that I've kind of picked up at junk shops and, <laughs> you know, I can't play any of them very well, but they're just great because you can sample them. You know, you can just record them in and then... Um, chop them up you know I'll it's like it's a bit like going out and getting fans on I'll just sort of noodle around for a while on something and then go oh that's cool like friends harmonium we borrow kind of lots of instruments Ollie's got loads of great instruments Mm -hmm. but he's a guitar player so it's like brilliant you know you know, he's got lots of crazy lutes and things like that. So it's great. Dulcimers. Yeah. Like yeah, mixed very much like that. I you'll, love You'll those. see later, he's, he's got quite a collection of of instruments. Yeah. You know, I, I used to have quite a bit of, you know, analogue stuff, but I've kind of got rid of it over the years because I've moved around quite a lot and it's really difficult, you know. It's like, like that with records. I just had to get loads rid of loads of records because it's just constantly moving around with vinyl. They're so heavy. Not the easiest thing to, you know, schlep around every time no. you move. I actually had a Sony Walkman the other day that I'd, I'd picked up at a car boot sale and I, and I just thought, oh, I had some tapes, some cassettes. So I put it in, put a through the headphone and put it all through a whole load of... Uh, I like guitar pedals and stuff, so I use them quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And just put them all through and it was brilliant. It was just like, this is great. And you could slow it down on the uh, the tape machine. It's a bit battered and it's a bit noisy, a bit hissy, but I quite like that anyway. Yeah. So we use that live, it's fun. And I can kind of... I've got a couple of looping pedals so I can loop the stuff and it's great. And I like doing stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like physical manipulation. Yeah, because you can format. do that quite easily live. You know, and I do that a lot with vocals. We've got it. I've got a, a, a Boss looping pedal which I really love, and you can just create kind of real crazy soundscapes and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the, it's more unusual now, isn't it, to be someone who has gear than to just have a laptop and an iPad or something. I do quite like some of the uh, the apps. There are there are a couple of really good ones that uh, Trunk put out a really good uh, synth one which is uh, like the Radiophonic Workshop one, which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of companies making interesting um, 
kind of soft synths, which I quite like, you know, and they're quite fun to have. It's always funny when you see gigs now when it's just a bloke on a laptop. I've never always, I've always been a bit like, do I like this? Do I like this? Am I being entertained? It's very difficult, you know. Yeah. But I think there is something quite unique when you see someone up there with a, like, a couple of pedals and he's manipulating sound. I thought, oh, that's good. I always get inspired by that. I'm, even DJs now with laptops. Yeah, it's like acceptable now to mix with MP3s and, and all that sort of stuff, which makes you the superstar DJ because you can just sync the tracks. Yeah. I've known because I've done it. I've DJed a few I've times. I've never used Tractor or anything. It's, I've used my yeah. laptop, but I've used it kind of to come up through the channel on the CD player, but I prefer just having two vinyl decks. Yeah, 1210s. You just can't beat that but feeling. But you ask for them and people go, we don't have them. I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> no, it's not, no, it's not 1210, it's quarter past four. <laughs> they don't oh, even know yeah, what 1210 is. I want my vinyl. <laughs> yeah, I, did, I had a mess about with some friends a few weekends ago on some 1210s and I was like, oh my God. And if you get the Pioneer mixer, which has the effects on the it. The DJM, yeah, the DJM. It's so brilliant, you know, because you, you can put all the little delays on. It's lovely. Yeah, it's and it tempo like, syncs, doesn't it? It'll, it'll read the It's a really good little bit of kit, but no one seems to... Do, a lot of the places now just have a stick. I'm going to take all my records on a stick. Mm-hmm. Which well, I can I, understand. I want. did hear Mike's going to say something quite funny about the, the USB stick. He's like, you can't just walk around. You couldn't just go on holidays like Ibiza. And say, yeah, I'll come to your party and I'll bring my entire record collection, you know, like... Oh, one 64-gig stick. Yeah, but if it wasn't on the stick, it would just... You actually bring your yeah, whole record collection. How unfeasible is that? It so, is, and I can understand why that has become the, the norm. Yeah. yeah. I just... There's something quite nice about playing vinyl. In the days when we all went on tour with Ninja, you'd have DJ food and, you know... Having those three decks with DK, you know, they do this kind of juggling thing. It would be amazing. You know, I've seen so many amazing kind of DJs doing amazing things. You know, even mm. watching Kid Koala just do his crazy cutting up. And it's just like, it doesn't seem to have that now. They were like superstar DJs for me because they would be up there doing amazing things. Yeah. And it would be, this is art. Yeah. But I don't, I don't see the same thing with doing that with CD things it's weird mm. there's a definitely a lot more skill involved isn't there yeah beat juggling and all that kind of uh, stuff you literally yeah took the words out of my mouth yeah beat like beat juggling for me even as a novice dj that is so much fun the first time you yeah. learn to, to actually cue something in and get it in time the first time you do it it's like i'm in i'm in we're in time i've got two records going on <laughs> Yeah, well, there was a band I was going to talk about earlier when we were talking about like visual stuff and mixing up like video and and uh, and music. They're a band called Sculpture. Who are? Yeah, I saw them the other night. Did you? For the first time, and I Where loved them. Where did you them. see them? Here, they played a thing called System Crash at Barrow Wines. I was like, there. We were there. Me yeah. and my group of friends were. Yeah, they were here. Because they're from there. Brighton, aren't they? Well, I no, don't they're, know from where they're from. No, they're from London. And I really loved the fact that he was using like flexi discs. Mm-hmm. of the visuals he's quite a kooky guy actually the, he almost looked like he'd stepped out of something like a, an Eisenstein film <laughs> uh, but um, I actually messaged them on their Facebook page because I said I really loved the set because it reminded me of Square Pusher a bit it was quite out there and, so out there yeah and he was yeah, using old tape and stuff and it was brilliant and he was just looping it around the like a bottle I think at one point 
It was intense. Yeah, did you see the bit where he has the record with rocks on it or something that was generating like a ticking or... It was brilliant. It's, but oh, the, like it was, it was two things because like the other guy was generating music. The guy who's just normally doing visuals, he was generating like, you know, like uh, percussive sounds. But also on the visuals, it ended up sort of looking like planets in the dark spinning around Very each other. Very clever. They're brilliant. Um, and quite... Uh, Kind of using a lot of old techniques, which I thought was really good. It was really, it was really refreshing, actually. I just felt that their whole kind of way they were working with old, you know, elements of what music used to be like, I thought was brilliant. Brilliant, isn't it? And but also like, he, I mean, one guy's using tape loops and yeah, things, I but I think he's also using like Ableton or something that's sequencing it in a future using like modern technology but yeah fusing it with yeah, I thought it was great holding you together I think that for me is what I tend to do now yeah the old kind of within, within the kind of new technology which is great I think that's that's a nice way of kind of you know harking back to the old but then also using it in in the kind of new world of technology mm, definitely yeah. but in terms of installations and stuff you've been involved I've done a few. I've done um, sort of. I did a thing called Departure Lounge, which was a was using film sound and a hospital bed, uh, wow. which I did a few what times. Was, what happened? What was the? Well, because I was really ill a few years ago, uh, and I got diagnosed with something I never thought I'd ever get. But I was in hospital for two weeks, really sick, mm-hmm. and um, they gave me. Uh, I had the option of trying two trial drugs and it was basically the lottery of which one I got and they ended up giving me one that actually had a really bad reaction to oh, no. and it made me feel like I, it actually felt like I'd taken acid and I have taken acid so I knew what it was I went on this mm. weird trip for two days and in the end I was begging them take me up this stuff it's horrible I was in this black hole I felt like I was just getting uh, further and further in the black hole mm-hmm. so it was based on my journey in the hospital. So, weirdly enough, while I was there, ill, I went round and recorded stuff. <laughs> so, is this Perfect. how this is how I operate? Even when I'm sick, I'm pulling round it, you know, a drip, <laughs> and recording all the sounds of the hospital. You know, the machine that they're taking my BP every ten minutes or something. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and so I kind of went out and created a film. I also also went around and took loads of photos. Well, because I could, there were days I could go outside into the um, into the hospital grounds. So I just took weird pictures to create kind of almost like stop motion. And that's why I created the film. The film was all done on a phone actually. I did it on a phone, wow. which is good. Which is the first time I'd ever use a phone to kind of create. I've had it. I had it at the Delaware. Um, a couple of things. A couple of shows in London. It was great, and I, I did a show in Edinburgh as well, so... And when you were ill, did you have the idea that... Did you know what you were going to do with that footage and with those photos? I kind of thought, well, I should try to... I want to document this, but I want to make it into something that represents... Because the room is basically all black. And I was... The first commission I got, I created... I almost wanted to create a kind of hospital room, so we kind of put weird lino on the floor and then we painted it in this weird clinical and then I basically projected the visuals onto the bed so it was almost like my imagery from my my head Mm -hmm. was on the bed and there was no one in there it was just a book 
and a pillar with an indentation because you know someone had been there. And I actually managed to get a hospital bed as well. And it, it's quite intense, the sound, because it's really dark and kind of, you know. But then, then you can hear all these kind of me wheeling my little thing down the corridor and the kind of sound of the did 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 when you're taking your blood pressure and stuff <laughs> yeah. like that. So it, it was just another way of kind of expressing something that was quite an intense time for me. I was really lucky, and I was mm. just like... You know, there were moments where I thought, well, I'm never going to get out of this place, but... Yeah, thankfully I did, and I kind of, the last week I was in there, I just wanted to get out, I was just like, I felt like I was in a prison, mm-hmm. so, yeah. Well, it's awesome that you made, you know, you made good out of that situation. Yeah, I came out the other side, and yeah. I think, I do that a lot though, I do kind of recreate kind of moments in my life through, I think a lot of artists do that, well, I assume they do. Mm-hmm. I think the, like, the very idea of being ill but still wanting to create art. I know, it's like, a bit weird, isn't it? No, no, that's not weird. I think that's brilliant because a lot of people would be resigned to, you know, being ill or, you know, like, carry on and just get over this yeah. bit. Whereas if you're, like, you're really in it, you're really feeling it and documenting it, I think that's incredible. And I watched... Um, there's a lot of power in that. Tarkovsky's uh, Solaris, the original, which is like three hours long or something. 1972. Yeah. It's a beautiful film. It's an amazing film. It's an intense film. And I remember I had to watch it in... I couldn't watch it all at once because it was so full on. I was like... Because I was so ill and delirious. And I was watching this film going, Jesus, this is hardcore. Because it's a long (laughs) film. It is, And then um, I also had The Prisoner, (laughs) which I watched, (laughs) which is hilarious because it's... uh, in Port Marion. It's Port Marion. Yeah, and yeah. I went there as a child. My dad took me there one year because we used to go on holiday in Wales. But I remember the first time I went there, I said, this is amazing. And then, then he said, oh no, there's this programme called The Prisoner. So I remember watching it a bit was, as a kid and then suddenly thinking, oh my God, and I watched it again and it, it's completely mad, that show. Is it? It's completely bonkers. I mean, in a good way. But the whole kind of living in this weird kind of, he doesn't know how he got there, how he's going to get, he'll never be able to get out, and all these strange people. It's, it's and when you're ill as well, it was, it was like, whoa, it was quite psychedelic. I'm really connecting with this. <laughs> <laughs> what other films, what, what influences would you say you had in, in film? Oh, well, Ridley Scott, I guess. I mean, I think Blade Runner was pretty pivotal. First time I saw that, I was just like, whoa. And also Vangelis' soundtrack on it, it's amazing. You know, I love the whole idea of the replicant and Decker and the whole thing with the... Uh, is she a replicant or isn't she? Yeah. And I do love the whole Rutger Hauer scene at the end. You know, I have seen things here at the end. And apparently mm-hmm. he totally improvised that. Really? Yeah, sort of a dog. And for its time, I think it's very clever. And, and that opening sequence... You know, with the big Japanese. You almost, you almost feel like you're in Tokyo. It's just fantastic. And I'm actually quite looking forward to seeing the new version mm-hmm. with uh, Ryan Gosling in. I'd be interested to see how it is. But, but, yeah, it's a great film. And I think, it, for me, on every level, visually and soundtrack-wise, I think it was a big player. 
for me. But then, I'll, then also things like Koinaskachi, uh, Baraka. Mm-hmm. I love those the kind of glass. They're beautifully crafted. There is no real story; it's just imagery, and yeah, I love that was kind it? of. Was that? I think Francis Philip Ford Coppola. Who and... did the Koinaskachis? Um... It was Francis Ford Coppola and and someone else. I think yeah. it was like George. Lu- it wasn't George Lucas, but it was someone else. So who great. Was huge. I just They're love the whole idea of look, watching the world, what people watching almost. Yeah. It's just very clever. And even just a little bit in slow motion and they're hammering things. And it's just a very clever film. They are incredible, yeah. And, um, and then sort of, in the last few years, I, I have discovered people like Tarkovsky, and an incredible filmmaker. I wish I'd gotten into him a lot earlier. Just his vision of things. Just, uh, there's a, uh, what's the one? In fact, they've got a whole festival. They're going to have some of his films on at the Kino here. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, I think, is it Mirror? There's one of his films that's just fantastic. Because he's also another one that looks not only at the image, but sound. Mm-hmm. But it, it doesn't actually have to be anything. Like, there's a scene where it just keeps going back to this field, and it's quite creepy, but he uses the weird sound of even the wind, and it's just like, it's, you know, and it's just brilliant. I just love that whole kind of way at looking at things very yeah. clever you know the bit in Solaris quite early on when he just looks at the reeds in the water see he uses that a lot in other films oh, where God. he goes back to nature so it was quite interesting how that happens and I just love that yeah snow, there's a snow there's snow in one scene is that in Solaris or because in Solaris he keeps going back to the dog and the family and you're kind of not sure what's going on I'm like yeah yeah uh, where are we now because he keeps going back to the riverbank and the uh, so, and I kind of like that because it does kind of make you go, oh, am I in the reality now or am I in the past or the future? Very clever. Yeah, Very you clever know, film. David, there's a few David Lynch films that are like that. Where, I do like a bit of Lynch. Yeah, I think the one Lost Highway for me was one that's like, wow, that really did sum up like being in a place where mentally you don't know what's true and what's not and what's a memory and what's... Uh, you know, totally fabricated. Yeah, in Lost Highway, it's just the narrative's so messed up. But he's like that anyway, because even if you want, you know, a Razorhead's classic. The sound in a Razorhead is amazing. It, it's uh, it's it, so it, painful. It's a creepy film, <laughs> but the whole thing where you just like constantly, it's the radiator that's kind of doing that. There's that that hum that sits in the whole film. Mm-hmm. It it's amazing. I'll, I'll, I mean, the first time I watched, it, I'm like, whoa, this is. Crazy, and then I went back and watched it again. I was like, "Actually, this is genius." And I read, and I think there was—I have a book where he talks about where they created the sound for that. And Mm -hmm. him and the—it wasn't Angela Baldina; it was another guy. And they both created. They lived in a. They created this black room to create the music, so they would get the right music, which I thought was crazy. It's like just total. But he is bonkers, David. (laughs) I'm quite looking forward to the new uh, Twin Peaks. Yeah, I he's to see re- what it's like. Yeah, he's remaking it, isn't he? Yeah. So yeah, people like people have always pushed boundaries. I do like you know filmmakers who kind of also just kind of challenge you, both visually and sonically. I think it's really you know I'm re- I'm always really interested at the kind of sound design in films and how that's used. You know, even in uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Nicholas Rowe, that there are moments in that where the sound in that's fantastic. And mm. I just think visually the way it kind of... when Obviously, David Bowie's character keeps going back to when 
who's living on the planet and the planet's dying and it's just brilliant it's just um, amazing stuff like that's just fantastic and do you, if you had like any production advice for someone who is like maybe learning to make music what would be what would you say to them maybe something that you didn't know in the beginning that's been useful for you get good speakers <laughs> get I mean you can buy you know speakers that are decent that aren't expensive and you know it's, it's so difficult because I was you know don't always trust your own ears but it's also good to get input from other people I do think you know when you're mixing I think mixing takes a long time to get right when you're writing music it's not always going to work you know it's about learning from your mistakes I sat in on a lot of sessions and watched people I, I got a lot from that just mm. watching what they do with EQ and stuff like that and you know the thing is I always do is like you, you gauge it by kind of turning it right down so you can just about hear it so it's so you can imagine what it'd be like on a radio and if you can hear everything and nothing's poking out you know mm. you've done a good mix vocals are different difficult to get right to get them sitting in right some people like their vocals right up front. I don't. I like them to be part of the mix. And they can still have their clarity. They don't have to be up there, you know. But then my songs don't really have that. They're not, you know, to be sung like that anyway. So. Mm-hmm. And do you find that you're able to, like, mix your vocals yeah. really well now? Like, you uh, know much exactly... rather than other people. Because I kind of know what I like and what I don't like. You kind of, over the years, you learn to... I do a lot of layering as well. So you need, they need to sit, they need to sound like they're, you know, they're all part of the same thing. Some vocals don't like reverb, some vocals love reverb. It's all about having a good mic, invest in a good microphone. But if you're going to do vocals, you know, look for something that's got a nice sound. I would say just go in and try stuff out. You just don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I mean, I think Ian Curtis used an SM57. Which is like a drum mic. <laughs> yeah. The, the and that just worked one. for him. Yeah. I think, you know, you'd be surprised. You know, I've bought, picked up crappy mics over the years just because I like the sound of them. And I've got an Audio Technica, which is a really old, old mic. And I've, I've had it for years. But it's, it's good. But there's so many good ones. You've got really good ribbon mics now that are cheap. You know, you could buy a road. You could buy, you know, four or five thousand pound road mic if you want. But I'm not always saying they're the best thing. Mm-hmm. Because when you come to post or you come to add things like effects and stuff like that, if you've got a really good recording in the first place, you're not going to have to do that much. Yeah, Ninja, Ninja was great. I had, you know, for me, they were really important when I was new and not really familiar with how record companies worked and and they were still at the very beginning of their kind of you know domination of, uh, of an independent label so mm-hmm. so I kind of grew up with you know DJ Food and I'm on Mixmaster Morris, Mixmaster Morris was around uh, I think even Jason from Cinematic Orchestra used to work in the office Herbalizer so it was a good time, you know, and obviously Matt and Jonathan, so, you know, Cold Cup, which was brilliant. And they were really kind of pioneers of that whole kind of independent 
thing. And they used to have a night, they used to have a night at the Blue Note, which was brilliant, Stells and all that. It was great. Mm. I had so much fun being in the label. Yeah, it was like, a brilliant time. Uh, yeah, and like you said, a great bunch of people as well. Like yeah, all really talented artists, but also yeah, just nice people. people yeah. You know, there wasn't really any egos. I never really encountered any major egos. It was always really, you know, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. You know, even with the the Big Dada crew and all the hip hop guys, which was hilarious. <laughs> you know, it was. Going on tour with them was just like going on one big ganja trip. It was was fine, you know. Breakfast ready. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun, you know. Morning, noon and night. I just don't know how they did it half the time. But, um... Practice. Yeah. You know, I could only do it so often. I needed to kind of have my head together. But, yeah, we had a laugh. Really good laugh. It'd be intense touring and gigging every night because you just get on the treadmill. And you do end up in your own little bubble. The tour bubble, which is mm. great, but yeah. Do you, do you found that that fueled creativity? Oh yeah, totally. Even though you might not write, I mean, some of them would write, but we would do things like sometimes in rehearsals or I mean, sound checks. We'd kind of get up and play with each other and stuff like that, and that was great. It was a lot of fun. It was just you know, because then we'd all because the great thing about what we used to do was we'd all take a stint on the merch table as well. So the fans would come in and you'd chat to all the people, sign things, you know. That's amazing. It was brilliant. I mean, we had, we did, we did have a merch girl who came on tour with us, but we all ended up doing it anyway because it was fun. For us, it was about being normal. We weren't superstars, we are just people. And I think they actually liked that, you know, I think... DJ Vadim and all those, we all did it. We all get there, you know. It's funny. I like that. I like that aspect about it. It just made us more human. Human, yeah. I met some really cool people that way. Just people would come on the, you get at the end of the night, you get people sitting on the tour bus at the end of the night, oh, hi. And then you'd end up having big friendships and then carry on being friends with them for years. It was brilliant. Yeah, it sparked something. Yeah, yeah, no, and I got a lot of friends through doing tours. Just people I met randomly at gigs and then end up keeping in contact. And then if I went back out, we'd all meet up and stuff. So it was great. It was really nice. I like that. Just kind of, I think that's the way it should work. You're not so untouchable that you, you whisk you away and then you don't meet anybody. I, don't, I mean, I guess if you're you know, a megastar, it's fine. Mm-hmm. We weren't. We were just a group of people that made music. Yeah. You know, big bands and big... And it always really, you know, made my day when I found out that actually they were just a normal person. Mm. Just really down to earth. It's refreshing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's just, just like, wow. You're not what I expected. Awesome. Great. I think, I think, we'll, I think we'll wrap it up there. Cool. Um, thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. No problem. Well, thank you very much to Neotropic for taking the time to speak to me and explain what it was like to be there in the 90s and when sampling was kicking off and about all of the Foley stuff that she did. I thought it was really interesting and really candid as well about the installations. I thought that was an incredible idea to use the, the illness as a way of creating artwork. I think that was amazing. Okay, next month I'm talking to someone who is in the musical theatre realm, who's had a varied career, touring with some huge artists, 
working in some amazing projects and currently working as a vocal coach and uh, MD for West End Productions. Okay, I'm Midiera, this is Midiera Meets, and I'll see you next time.